Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman." And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is the word of God to us. Be to God. Amen. Thanks, Emberly. Well, good morning, all. Hope you're all doing well. Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, my name is John Reiner. I am uh, one of the pastors here, and it's really good to be with you all. Uh, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. I want to say a special welcome uh, to those of you who may have traveled here to Oklahoma City to be with family or friends for Thanksgiving. Just want to say a special welcome to you. Glad you're here, and welcome to our city, and uh, safe tra travels back. Uh, as Dylan mentioned, we are now in the season of Advent, and uh, it's a really beautiful time. I didn't grow up in a church that celebrated Advent, but it's this cultivation of longing for the return of Jesus, and uh, celebrating his first coming at Christmas, and um, uh, over the next four weeks, we're going to be in a, an Advent sermon series, and we're going to look at 
uh, the coming of Jesus through for what you might uh, consider classic or traditional Christmas passages. We're going to look through the lens of the Old Testament uh, at Christmas and at the coming of Jesus. We're going to look at hope today, peace, love, and joy. And uh, today, we're going to look at the very first Christmas passage in the Bible. All right? So, can we pray? And um, we'll get started. So, Father, um, we just want to say thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your presence here. Jesus, we want to say thank you for coming and um, to us as a vulnerable, breakable baby um, so that we could know life. And I'm asking today, I don't know where everyone is at in their hearts or their circumstances, maybe coming off of some hard family time in the holiday. I'm just asking that, Holy Spirit, you would um, speak real clearly and real powerfully to our hearts today. We need you. You are our only hope. And we give you this time. We consecrate it to you in the name of Jesus. And everyone together said, amen, amen. Well, at the dinner table this, uh, this past week, I asked my family this, this question. We like to ask each other questions. So here, here's the question. I asked, what is the worst day in human history? Like, what do you think the worst day in human history, like the lowest point of the human race? So we kind of bandied that around. Um, answers like, you know, the Holocaust or D-Day or even 9-11. We Googled it because that's what we do when we don't know the answer to things. So we Googled it and it was like almost every answer had to do with like uh, an or inordinate number of people dying. It was, it was horrible. And you're like, Thank you, John, for leading off with such a chipper, chipper topic. Merry Christmas to you as well. Um, but here, here's my answer to that question. You ready? My answer to the worst day in human history is that the passage we just read, Genesis 3, is unequivocally the worst day in human history, and it's not even close. Because this day is the day that's con that conceived every other bad day ever since. And here's, here's the main idea this morning. Because this day is the day that sin entered the world, and everything that's wrong with the world is because of sin. Everything that's wrong with the world is because of sin. Sin is the reason for wars and racism and abortion and refugees and all manner Every manner of human evil. Sin is why we have natural disasters, earthquakes, tornadoes. Sin is at the root of what causes pain. Um, sin is personal. It's relational. Right? It's, it's social. It's global. And sin has a thousand faces. But, but at the bottom, bottom line, sin is not the way it's supposed to be. Sin is not the way it's supposed to be. And deep down, we feel it, don't we? We feel it. We hate it. We, we want to change it. We want to see something happen. But sin, not low self-esteem, I'm going to argue today, is what's at the bottom of all of our grasping, all of our trying to manage and control relationships, our bent towards power, right? control, approval, our secret addictions, our medicating, our masking, at bottom, it's sin. 
Advent is a season of longing, right? It's longing for an end to sin. Advent is the dream, the dream that one day, one day everything will be set right. And we let those longings flow in this season. So this morning to get to the real offense that sin is to God and, and really deep, the deep ache that it causes in our souls, we have to go back to the beginning. We have to look at the origins of sin. If it's the problem, if it's what the reason everything is wrong in the world, let's look at it. We're going to look at two things. First, the dynamics of sin in the human heart. What sin is, what sin does. Okay, and we're going to look through the lens of Adam and Eve's story. And then secondly, we're going to look through God's lens, and we're going to look at some of the surprising things that God does. Okay? Are you with me? All right, so let's, let's roll. First, what sin is. And as you're listening to me, keep this phrase in the back of your mind so this isn't just sort of information transfer. They are you and me. They are you and me. See if this matches up with your experience and your reality. What sin is? First, it's undermining God's good authority. If you see there in the text, the first words of the enemy did God actually say. Now, let me say first of all, the Bible tells us that we have an enemy, capital E. And Jesus and the confession of the church um, say that, that enemy is the one empowering everything that is happening here. The Bible calls him the ancient serpent, the devil. Okay, so this isn't myth. This isn't fable. What's, what's happening here? It says the enemy is empowering what's happening here. He's questioning God's authority. Did God actually say? It's like, it's like the kid who says to his friend, did your dad actually say that we couldn't have the beer in the fridge, right? Did, God, did your mom actually say, you know, we didn't have to come home at that time, right? He's not saying, did, did God say it? It's, does it matter? Does it matter? And this is where sin starts. It's, it's the lie that God's a moral prude, that, that he's a killjoy. Chad mentioned this last week that really he's just anti-freedom, anti-fun. And Adam and Eve didn't just say, I want this fruit. They're saying, I don't want the life of this God. They are you and me. So if you see there, Eve engages the conversation, right? And it leads to the second thing, which is rationalizing. Rationalizing. The enemy shows his hand. He just flat contradicts God. You won't surely die. You won't die. He says, God's lying to you. He's messing with you. And this, this is the deadliest lie of the enemy because it's this, it's this separation or this disconnecting of sin from death. And that's real pervasive. That's the standard narrative in our culture. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Right? Our culture says sin is just it's just dabbling. It's just, a, it's just a misstep in an otherwise fairly good life. Not that we're bragging. 
It's an affectation. Right? The enemy says, you'll be fine. In fact, you'll be better off. You'll be enlightened. Bible says sin is putting yourself in the place of God, and it's the reason we're separated from God spiritually and the reason why we die physically. Listen, death is not the way it's supposed to be. Never was. So where are you rationalizing? The third thing is disobedience. What sin is? Disobedience. Verse 6 says, She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And I don't know if you grew up in church or are familiar with this story. You know, the standard scene is, you know, like Adam's sitting on the couch, watching TV, whatever he's doing, and Eve kind of comes, comes in, and uh, there's this half-eaten piece of fruit, and Adam's like, babe, what did you do? This is bad. I mean, real bad. Well, I mean, what am I going to do? I guess I'll have a bite too. That's not the picture. That's not the scene. What's it say? It says Adam was, quote, with her. He's watching the whole thing go down. And he doesn't take a bat to the snake. Can we just pause for a second and say, wouldn't we all just be a little bit better off, a lot better off if Adam had taken a bat? Okay, he didn't have a bat. He had to write a club or a stick or whatever. But if he, if he just like set fire to the snake right then and there. But he doesn't. Here's the point. Sin is both active rebellion against the commands of God and passive ignoring of God's commands. All right, now let's turn to what sin does. There's tons of things I could say here, but let me just give you five things that sin does, and we'll see them here in the text. Verse seven, shame. Shame. It says they knew they were naked. Think of this. Embarrassment had not been experienced as an emotion up until this point. They had been naked and unashamed, and for the first time, a human felt like every sixth grader's worst nightmare, our worst nightmare, right? Public nakedness. But it's deeper than just the feeling. Nakedness through the scripture is an idiom that says I don't want anyone to really know me. I can't be fully known and fully loved. And remember, they are you and me, right? Shame, shame is sin's evil twin cousin. This sense that I'm not enough just as I am. I'm not adequate. I was talking with a friend just in the last couple weeks, and he described shame this way. If, if I show people who I really am, they'll reject me. And we live life strategizing lots of mental energy and effort of how to just avoid shame, how to just make our way around without feeling that feeling. So what do they do? What sin does, covers up. Covers up, verse seven, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is their attempt to cover their shame, right? For us, fig leaves um, are our best efforts, our best efforts to make a life and curate an identity without God at the center. 
on our shame management efforts. We do anything and everything we can to not be seen as not enough, whether that's a pursuit of beauty and appearance and image or credentials or education or success or family or name your fig leaf. We are creative in how we do this. It's like the blanket, you know, that you you try to get to cover your whole body and it's just not quite long enough to stretch, right? That's what we do. We do our best to cover up our flaws and show our best sides and this is modern dating. No one wakes up in the morning and decides that's the picture they're gonna put on the dating website or whatever, right? We show our best sides. Next, hiding, verse eight. The man and his wife hid themselves from the, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So what once was the greatest thing in the world, communion with God has now become a source of dread, someone to run away from, and we run in all kinds of ways, right? Busyness, numbing out, that relationship that we know, we know isn't right, but it feels safe and warm. They are you and me. So the question to us is, where are you hiding? How are you hiding? Fear, verse 10. I heard the sound of you in the garden, Adam says, as, as, uh, as God is asking him questions. And I was afraid. I was afraid because I was naked. The enemy had essentially said, don't be afraid of everything. It'll be fine. It'll be great. They're terrified. They are terrified. Fear comes from sin. And there's all kinds of things we live in fear of. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Afraid of people, failure, right? not having enough, not being liked. We live with it. The Bible says perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. So only God, only God and his love. And then the last thing is uh, that you see them doing is denial and blaming. So in verse 11, you see um, God saying, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now what, what should Adam have said at that point? Well, he, he should have said something like, God, no one told me I was naked. I just, I just knew. And, uh, and truth be told, I watched the whole thing go down and I didn't speak up and I didn't do it and uh, I was wrong. I did it. I ate. That's what he should have said. Hardest words for a human being to utter. I was wrong. I was wrong. So he gets the attention off himself. He deflects, he denies. He says, well, the woman you gave me. You see how he's just even throwing judgment on, on God. For some of us in the room, we've actually judged God in our circumstances as not good. You gave me this girl. So he moves to the woman. What's the woman say? Well, the devil made me do it. Devil made me do it. Sin is willing to throw someone, even people close to us, under the bus to justify ourselves because what the heart wants, the mind justifies. And we're professionals at it. 
Blaming can look like subtle jabs and sarcasm all the way to like full-blown, eye-rolling contempt of another person or, or of God himself. So bringing this part to, to a close, we find the doctrine here of original sin. By nature and by choice, we're fallen creatures separated from God, and it's hardwired into our reality. Doesn't mean we're as evil as we could be, but we're never as good as we could be in any circumstances. Romans 3, all of sin falls short of the glory of God. It's inborn. This came clear, clearer to me several years ago when um, my wife was telling me a story that she was meeting with a friend at McDonald's, and uh, Alec, my oldest son, was three. And um, so he's at the play place, you know, playing in the little ball pit there. And uh, out of the corner of her eye, she sees him just haul off and just jack another kid right there in the play place, right there in the ball pit. Uh, and, and so she's like, pulls him aside, what, what are you doing? What, what is, what are you, you know, this isn't like you. This is out of character. What are you doing? And he literally said this. He said, Mom, I can't stop myself from doing bad things. Straight up, he's three years old. He's not read the Bible, clearly. My son's a prodigy, but he has not run, read the Bible. Right? Inside, we get it. It's instinctual. We know we're not God, capital G, but we want to be God's. Okay, so now, we want to look at this same story. We've seen it through their, their lens. Now let's look at God. This is where we find hope. And if we saw ourselves in that point, I want us to, to ask ourselves the question, is this the way you see God? Okay, is this the way you see God? God's side, four things. What God gives to us, and this is surprising. First, he gives us his presence. In the middle of our sin and our shame, he gives us his presence. Verse 8 and 9, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Seems to be a, a custom. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, how many of you know that an omniscient, all-knowing, sovereign creator of the universe does not ask questions to obtain information? It's not the point. He knows where Adam is. He seems unsurprised and calmly. What's he do? Ask a question. Here's the point. In our hiding and running, God moves toward us. He wants a relationship with us. He could have said, Adam, get your naked butt out here now. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He simply asks a question, but it's a deep question. Adam, where's your soul? He's counseling them. It's this tender invitation to come out from hiding, to come clean, to drop the fig leaves of our efforts and our attempts and our tiresome ways. Where are you? Stop listening to me for just a second. Normally a preacher should never say that. But just for a second and hear the voice of the Father saying, asking you, where are you? 
Where are you? Maybe it's I'm lost. Maybe it's I don't know where I am, but it's not a good place. It's not good. Maybe it's I'm stuck. Maybe it's I don't know how I got here, but I'm dying. It would be easy, really easy to mentally agree that God pursues other people. Yeah, John, but you don't know me. You don't know my soul, my circumstances. I get that. But listen, Christmas, Christmas is the objection. Christmas is the answer to that objection. John 1.14, we read it this morning. The word was made flesh and lived among us. Christmas is God walking the earth, seeking out the lost. Christmas says that God did the ultimate. He sent himself. God made flesh, flesh, came for us to find us, and he's still asking you and me, where are you? Where are you? Second thing we see God gives is his judgments. Now, as I was reading through this and studying, it's like, I don't like this. This doesn't feel fair. Which kind of revealed to me um, my own sinful heart that I cared more about the unfairness of me being mistreated versus how I'd mistreated God and dishonored God. There's about five sermons I could preach in here, but just just notice a few things with me. First off, um, I don't think that first piece is is, uh, about snakes primarily. I think it's about the enemy. Um, He doesn't ask the enemy questions. He just straight curses him. That's good news. That's really good news. Notice also the things that the judgments speak to and aren't, and uh, these are the causes of so much anxiety and confusion. Think about um, pain within our work, the futility and frustration. Think about relationships between men and women. Um, Think about pain around children and legacy. It's like the world was a clock that worked perfectly, beautifully, and one of the gears of that clock decided to jump out of its place and do its own thing. And the clock breaks down, right? The gears grind, it's messy. And that's the world. God's not being arbitrary, He's saying this is what you do when you choose your own masters, you go against my design, the world you are going to disintegrate. And like a good dad, he says, this is not okay. This is not okay. And like a holy God worth worshiping, he will not compromise on evil. He is a judge. He's a judge. And that leads from judgments into really beautiful thing, his promise. Look in verse 15. Right in the middle of the judgments, there's embedded hope. Hope, it's a prophecy from God himself. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is him speaking to the serpent, the enemy. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first light of Christmas, the very first preaching of the gospel. Let me show you. Enmity. There will be enmity, hostility, division, war between the enemy and people. That's true. Some of you are very aware that supernatural evil is trying to take you out. You've even experienced that recently. You know there's enmity there. And so, 
And also there will be two groups of people, not bad and good, but we're all, because we're all sinners, but people who follow the lie that God is the enemy of our happiness and those who don't. There's also enmity there, and that's true. Then he moves to singular. Look at it. He moves to a he. He will bruise or strike your head. What's happening? Who is that? It's a he. Well, someone is coming from the offspring or literally seed of the woman. Remember that, seed of the woman who's going to wrestle with and defeat the enemy. Now, normally in a patriarchal society, you'd expect it to be the seed of the man, but it's not. He's actually dignifying the woman. So question, in the history of the world, there's only been one person who's been born, who's the only person who's been born only of a woman? Isaiah 7, the prophecy, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall be called, what? Emmanuel, God with us. And then he says, you will strike his heel to the enemy. It's like a snake coming into the middle of your Thanksgiving meal. Imagine that, right? Family, friends all gather around. Snake slithers in. Everybody is freaking out. Some manly man takes a bat. We're choosing bats. I don't know why, but takes a bat to the snake, crushes the snake, but in the process gets bit and dies. Good Friday. It's Good Friday. So in this one prophecy, embedded right in the middle of the judgments, we have Christmas and Good Friday together. God is saying, I'm going to crush this one day. Sin, Satan, death. I'm going to do it through sending my son as a crushable baby who will live a sinless life, the kind of life you would expect God to live if he came to earth. And he would take on himself all of the rebellion, not just of Adam, but of all humanity, and die the death that Adam brought into the world. And then he will rise again to claim victory over that sin and death. That's the crushing of the head and the striking of the heel. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. No matter how far we've gone in sin and shame and addiction and mess and chaos, there is a sure hope that a Savior has come. I love these words from O Holy Night. Listen. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Oh, all of a sudden, I must be worth something. A thrill of hope, the weary soul rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. So what do we do? Fall on your knees. Worship him. Submit to him. Surrender to him. Believe in him. All right, this leads us to the last thing, verse 21. This might seem like a throwaway, like it's just an add-on, but it's not. Verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. He gives his covering. Now, yeah, there's an element of just practical help, right? Clothing from protection from the physical elements. But remember, nakedness is an idiom that says, I don't want anyone to really know me. 
because if they fully know me, they won't love me. Right? That shame work we work so hard to cover. And the narrative of shame says, in the presence of God, I'm exposed and I'm left exposed. So do everything to avoid that. The narrative of the scriptures say, I'm exposed, but I'm covered. I'm exposed, but I'm covered. Psalm 32, David puts it this way. This is beautiful. Pray this prayer. Blessed, David says, is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is what? Covered. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. Then he says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. 48 times, David, the psalmist, used hiding place or refuge as the name of God. What's that mean? What well, means God has gone from a, a place of awful dread to where he can go, where he can run to, who he can hide in when he feels exposed. The question is, do you feel that way about God? Is he a safe place? Is he a safe place for you? Because he is a safe place. He calls himself a refuge. He calls himself a hiding place. When you're tempted, when you feel vulnerable, when you feel exposed, when you feel attacked or accused, I'm telling you, you gotta turn the radio off. You gotta get somewhere, somehow, morning, lunch, night, you gotta run to your hiding place. He is your hiding place or we're dead. We gotta run there to find safety, to find cover. We need him. There's a chorus that when I, I grew up in church, it was a Baptist church, really we're a beautiful set of believers, group of believers, it was family, and we sang this song. It'll date me a little bit, but the words are beautiful. It says, I am covered over with the robe of righteousness that Jesus gives to me. I'm covered over with the precious blood of Jesus and he lives in me. What joy it is to know my heavenly father loves me so and gave to me my Jesus. When he looks at me, listen, when he looks at me, he sees not what I used to be, but he sees Jesus. That, Christian, is the gift of the righteousness of Jesus. His life, his perfection for your death and sin and rebellion and imperfection and shame. He covers you. you know, two Short bits of application. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I, I just want to say this. Um, you really can be saved. You really can be saved. This is not myth. It's not fable. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. The greatest news of ever. It's not sentimentality. This is truth that you can build a life on. Submit and give your life to Jesus. For the believer... If you're a believer, you may be in the middle of despair and really hard circumstances. And I, I just want to bring the encouragement of longing for hope. For some of you, hope may really hurt and may be the hardest thing to do. Run to your hiding place. Find covering in Jesus. He's your healer. He's your redeemer. He's your only hope and your only help. He loves you.
Okay, let's pray. Jesus Christ, Son of God, we thank you. Thank you for who you are and what you've done in coming and living the life that you lived, suffering and dying the death that you died and making a way for us to know God. Thank you that we don't have to effort and pine and, and, and strive or strain, but yet you've come to us and you're available and accessible here and now. Just take a minute and just interact with the Lord as he says, ask you this question, where are you? Do you need him this morning? Where are you hopeless this morning? Where are you in dire straits this morning? Where have you run to other things, other people to satisfy you this morning? Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for who you are and that you that you're good and your hope. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, amen.